Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I begin, let's do a little bit of a current events update. I just want to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. I mentioned last week that Kevin McCarthy was forced out of his position as Speaker of the House. And if you thought for a second that that was going to be the worst of it, you were wrong. Two candidates emerged as contenders for the job, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise. In the preliminary voting, Scalise got more votes, so they were prepared to move to a full House vote. But recognizing that he didn't have enough people behind him and probably couldn't get them, Scalise dropped out. Another preliminary vote was completed, and this time, Jim Jordan got the votes. But he has a lot of ground to make up if he wants to get to the 217 votes required to be named Speaker of the House. This is just going to keep getting worse. And we are one week into the conflict in Gaza. Last Saturday, Hamas, a known terrorist group with financial ties to Iran, launched a horrific multi-pronged surprise attack on Israel. It was shocking in its atrocity, far beyond what we've seen other terrorist groups commit. The sheer magnitude, the violence, the cruelty. We're talking beheadings, rapes, kidnappings, just an incredible show of barbarism. Also shocking was how on earth they could have managed to pull this off, considering Israel is widely known as having some of the most sophisticated defense capabilities in the world. Not to put too fine of a point on it, but Hamas poked the bear, and now the entire world is trying to convince Israel to show restraint. And I know, it's hard to think about restraint when you've just been attacked so viciously. Think about how we felt after 9-11. We wanted to blow someone off the face of the earth. And that's the problem. Israel has the capability to do just that. They can wipe out what's left of Palestine by simply wiping the Gaza Strip off the map. The trouble is, Hamas is a terror group, and many of the people in Gaza, who would be the targets of an Israeli attack, are innocent civilians. In fact, 43% of them are children. I don't know how this is going to end, but I think it's going to be terrible for a lot of innocent Israeli and Palestinian people who are playing no part in this conflict. Well, now that we're all depressed, let's get back to the reason you tuned in today. I follow the same template every week. So if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I'm going to tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it all about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar-worthy? And should you watch it, or will it end up being a couple of hours you wished you had back? As a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and I sometimes go off on tangents about current events. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always seem to mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Just be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away.
This week's Oscar-winning film is Annie Hall. It was released April 27, 1977. It's directed by Woody Allen. It stars Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. And just like any other Woody Allen film, there are about 20 other famous people who have bit parts or make cameos. I'll mention them as we go along. It was nominated for a total of five Oscars, and it won four of them. It won for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. If you want to watch it, it is available on Cinemax, HBO Max, and Spectrum if you have subscriptions to any of them. Otherwise, you're going to pay $3.99 to watch it on Amazon Prime Video, Vudu, Redbox, or Apple TV. So what is it about? This movie explores the on-again, off-again relationship between Alvy Singer and Annie Hall. They are played by Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. The bulk of it takes place in New York City. Alvy is a successful comedian raised in Brooklyn, having spent many years in therapy and seems to think just about everyone is against him because he's Jewish. Annie is originally from Wisconsin. From a career perspective, she dabbles a bit. She's a creative type who patches together a living from various art forms and is currently working as a lounge singer. The movie opens with Alvi speaking directly to the camera. His monologue prepares us for what we're about to witness through the course of the film. We see him as a child, we see his parents, his teachers, and the classmates who influenced his upbringing. He grows into a neurotic adult who has a strong opinion about everything. One of his actor friends has been trying to convince him to move to California, but Alvy is a true New Yorker. He can't find an ounce of value in living anyplace else. And then we get to meet his girlfriend, Annie. They've been a couple for a while at this point, and it's apparent that there's a lot of tension in this relationship. In just a matter of minutes, they disagree on just about everything. First, they meet at the movies, and because Annie is running a little bit late, they have missed the first two minutes of the movie, and Alvy simply refuses to go in. He feels they've missed too much, and he can't tolerate going into a movie that he considers already to be half over. He insists they go to another movie, a depressing World War II movie they've already seen. And while they're waiting in line, Alvy loses his mind over the man standing in line behind them, loudly sharing his opinion about topics he doesn't seem terribly well-versed in. Annie tells him to ignore the guy, but Alvy just can't help himself. Then later that night, Annie is not in the mood for sex, which irritates Alvy. He can't understand why their sex life has cooled off so much. She chalks it up to a phase, which she sure will pass. Every relationship goes through dry spells. And this is when we learn that Alvy has been married twice before. His first wife was Allison. She's played by Carol Kane. They meet backstage at an Adlai Stevenson fundraising function where Alvy is one of the hired acts. She's a grad student working part-time for the campaign and is coordinating the entertainment for the event. Looking back, Alvy says he can't quite figure out why their relationship didn't last, but we, as the audience, can see it very clearly. I love this scene because he's ranting about something that has always bugged me, too. How could Lee Harvey Oswald have acted alone? 
The writing here is just brilliant. He goes on and on about this detail and that detail, and you see the mounting irritation on Allison's face. She just needs him to shut the fuck up about the Warren Commission and come to bed. But Alvy's too wound up to give her the time and attention she deserves. She concludes that he's using this conspiracy theory to avoid having sex with her. And she's right. For some reason, he chose to subconsciously sabotage his relationship with Allison, and he will never fully understand what possessed him to let her get away. The next few scenes are of Alvy and Annie in better times. They did have their fair share of funny and memorable moments. They discuss their romantic histories, and we get to see those histories firsthand through a series of flashbacks. First, the men Annie has dated, and there's Alvy's second wife, who is a well-connected New York writer who can't get over her husband's complete lack of social skills. She prefers to be surrounded by intellectuals, and he just wants to stay home and watch the Knicks game. Next, we go back to the first time Alvy and Annie meet each other. They are invited by friends to play tennis, and after the game, she offers him a ride home. And I'm being honest when I tell you that this scene is the height of cringy. I was actually uncomfortable at the awkwardness of their conversation and how oddly they were both behaving. And Annie is just nervous giggling through the whole scene, like, <laughs> so um, <laughs> do, do you do you want to lift? Because um, <laughs> I, 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 I have a car. <laughs> it's maniacal. She's acting like a crazy person. It gets a little better when they arrive back at her house, but now it's just a different type of awkward. I feel like everything that comes out of her mouth is an opportunity for him to use it for a punchline. He appears to be trying to get to know her by asking questions. Who are the people in these photos? Which of these books is your favorite? But the more she talks, the more he makes fun of her. It's obvious that he thinks her quaint, down-to-earth Midwestern aesthetic is vastly inferior to his New York sophistication. If I would have watched this movie 30 years ago, I may not have picked up on it. But now it's easier for me to spot someone who's being kind yet condescending. I don't know that Annie realizes what's happening, but later in the movie, she does, and she eventually calls him out for his behavior. Once she catches on to his M.O., the relationship starts to go downhill real fast. But for now, she's just happy to be around him, and she laughs along at his insensitive digs at her. Their next date begins with Annie's unfortunate first attempt at singing in a nightclub. It doesn't go as planned, but Alvy is there to cheer her up and encourage her to keep trying. Later that night, as they are in bed, Alvy discovers that Annie prefers to smoke weed before sex because it helps her to relax. At this point, he's just excited about getting her into the sack, so he doesn't make much of it. But put a pin in this, it's going to come up later. Alvy starts to buy books that he thinks Annie should read to make herself more well-rounded. Most of them are about death, which is a fascination of his. He's also trying to help her expand her mind, trying to get her to take adult education classes at the local college, which is her first indication that he might not think she's smart enough for him. 
we see the moment where they first declare their love for each other, which is very sweet, until the realization hits Alvi that the next step would be them moving in together. This causes him a great deal of anxiety. Although he's deeply in love with Annie, he still feels like there should be a level of personal freedom. And how can they explore that if they're living under the same roof? They get into a small argument, and this is the first time she confronts him about the way he talks down to her, that he must think she's dumb based on the way he treats her. Later, when they're on a weekend in the Hamptons, he starts to question why she needs to get high every time they have sex. She claims it relaxes her so she can enjoy herself more, which he takes offense to. He chalks it up to, you have to be on drugs in order to enjoy intimacy with me which is not true, but he guilts her into giving up what she wants or needs in order to do things his way because it gives him a complex. Unfortunately, it doesn't go his way, and the sex ends up being terrible. Alvi learns that his constant nagging at Annie to learn more and take classes, better herself, has come back to bite him. He discovers that she's spending a little too much time with one of her professors, which was allowed, by the way, because Alvi is the one who insisted that they have a flexible relationship. He also kept suggesting that she see a therapist, going on and on about how he's been in therapy for 15 years, and it's really improved his life. Of course, he did not expect that she would end up being really good at that as well. After just one session, it appears that Annie had like 19 different breakthroughs. And now Alvi is beside himself that he's been going all these years and doesn't get nearly as much out of it as Annie does. So here's Annie. She's doing well in therapy. Her singing career is starting to gain steam. And the classes she's taking are allowing her to expand her skill set while also making a new set of friends. She's accepted the fact that he never really thought she was smart enough for him to take seriously. But this is the first time she's had the confidence to walk away. And so she does just that. Annie calls it quits. It doesn't last long. They miss each other and they end up back together, swearing they will never break up again. And this is a hilarious reunion and eventual makeup scene which starts when Annie finds a large spider in her apartment and calls Alvi to come kill it. Long story short, they end up getting back together. One night after Annie's club performance, she is approached by a record producer named Tony. He's played by Paul Simon. He's quite taken with her and suggests that they should partner together on an album. Put a pin in this because it comes up in a later scene. Alvi finally agrees to visit California when he's asked to appear on a TV show. His actor friend Rob is there to show them around and takes them to the happening parties, one of which happens to be at the home of Tony Lacey, the record producer. Tony officially offers Annie the opportunity to cut an album. It's going to take six weeks, but Annie is really compelled by his sales pitch. Alvi hates California, so he's very cynical and condescending the entire time they're there. There's just nothing anyone can say that will convince him that any place is as good as New York. On the flight home, the two of them agree that they should break up again. 
they have both come to the conclusion that they want very different things. We see them going through the motions of separating their stuff. This one's mine, that is yours, both continuously reaffirming that this breakup is a good idea, and they both know it's for the best. It turns out really good for Annie. She heads off to California to live with Tony Lacey. Alvy is still in New York, depressed and lonely. He tries dating, but no one seems to get him the way Annie did. He calls her regularly and tells her she should come back to New York. That's where she belongs. He even decides, with every bit of fucking audacity that he can muster, to fly to L.A. and bring her back home. (laughs) Imagine his shock and surprise when she's like, what the hell are you doing here? I'm not going anywhere with you, you crazy self-centered asshat. Now I'm paraphrasing. But that's essentially her mood when he shows up and tries to convince her that life in California sucks and she should come back to New York so he can be happy again. She's not having it. She's not going back to New York. They are never, ever getting back together. We, oh, sorry. They are never getting back together. And that's the end of the conversation. In the closing scenes of the movie, we see that Alvy has written a play based on his relationship with Annie. Only in his version, she gives up her career in L.A. because she so badly wants to be his girlfriend again. They do eventually run into each other sometime later on the upper west side of Manhattan. They have lunch together. They catch up on old times. And then Alvy and Annie go their separate ways. Question one, does Annie Hall stand the test of time? It is still regarded as being one of the best written movies in history. And I don't deny that the script is brilliant. The whole idea of it is fun, the way it bounces back and forth through various points in time. There's also a lot of moments where they're talking directly to the camera or they're standing in the scenes watching themselves in a past memory. It's very creative, and I can see why it has a very dedicated fan base. Annie Hall is a fashion icon. Her wardrobe is the stuff of legend. This movie is credited with a huge fashion movement that's still prevalent today. Annie often wears menswear items, ties, vests, trousers, and hats, It's a very soft but decidedly manly way of dressing. And these looks are still seen today. It broke barriers. No longer were women expected to wear dresses everywhere. They could dress more like a man, but still remain sexy and feminine. It was life-changing. Now, putting all that aside, let's be honest. There are some parts of Annie Hall that are problematic for today's audiences. There's some obvious ones, like... Alvy's actor friend, Rob, bragging that he's had sex with 16-year-old twins. Well, that's creepy as fuck, especially considering Alvy's response is just to nod as if he approves. Perfectly fine. Move along, folks. Nothing to see here. As with all these movies, I watched it twice. The first time I thought it was funny and engaging, perhaps a little bit too neurotic for my taste, but I thought, this is a great little movie about this on-again, off-again relationship, what's not to like? But the second time around, I caught on. And maybe I was watching through the lens of an independent single woman. But my God, 
the entire relationship is literally the Alvi show. They go to the movies that he wants to see. He insists she reads the books that he enjoys, that she takes adult education classes so she can keep up when they discuss his favorite topics. He makes fun of her folksy Midwest conversational style. He buys her sexy lingerie for her birthday because he wants to fulfill a fantasy. He doesn't want her to get high before sex because it makes him question his capabilities. He doesn't want her to hang out with anyone but him because she might discover she has more fun without him. He doesn't want her to go to California because it interferes with the life he's made for himself in New York. He pays for her to go to therapy, but then gets upset when she starts to express feelings and desires that are different than what he expects her to have. My favorite part is when she suggests they go away together to relax and enjoy each other. And because he's a selfish prick, what he decides that they are going to do is go to his old neighborhood in Brooklyn so he can show her where he lived and where he went to school and what a sports hero he was. So my point is, for all the good this movie has, the great jokes, the cool wardrobe, all of the superstar cameo appearances, and Diane Keaton is at her absolute best here. But I would question if this would survive in today's more feminist-leaning culture. And there's also a great big elephant in the room. I'm probably not the only person on the planet who thinks Woody Allen is a child predator and an all-around sick little motherfucker. If I saw this movie 30 years ago, I would have just chalked it up to his sense of humor being a little too risque for some people's taste. No big whoop. But knowing what I know now and hearing about all of the things he's done and been accused of, I question how much of this is true to life. His life, much like this character, shows a pattern of demeaning and belittling behavior toward women. One of the central themes of this movie is how he practically has to bully Annie into having sex with him because he believes he deserves it, like she owes it to him, even if she's not in the mood. I don't know. I'm not trying to ruin this for you. It's just giving me a little bit too much ick factor. Question two, is it Oscar worthy? I will say yes, because in all fairness, I can understand why it was appealing to the Oscar voters. The other movies nominated that year were Julia, The Turning Point, The Goodbye Girl, and Star Wars. I suspect some of you may have different opinions here, especially considering the iconic worldwide phenomenon that Star Wars has become over time. Personally, I would have voted for The Goodbye Girl. I think that is an exceptional movie. Woody Allen was nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor. He won for Director and Screenplay, but Richard Dreyfuss took home the Acting Award. Frankly, I'm a little surprised he won for Best Director, considering he had to beat out George Lucas for Star Wars and Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Diane Keaton won for Best Actress, and I wasn't kidding when I said she's never been better. And since then, she has been cast in a significant number of romantic comedies, and I'm sure every writer and director tried desperately to recreate that Annie Hall magic. 
I just don't think it can ever happen again. And she has openly admitted that this was by far her favorite role. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, I think it's culturally significant. It's one of those movies that people will say, what do you mean you've never seen Annie Hall? Because at one point in time, it was widely talked about and wildly popular. It's a great fashion inspiration and a movie with some very memorable quotes. It is a wonderful movie. And if you want to see a romantic comedy at its best, you got to watch this one. It was technically the big launch of Woody Allen's career. There was at least two decades where everything he made was the darling of all the awards shows and everyone who's anyone in Hollywood lined up to be in his movies. Much like Harvey Weinstein, I think there were a lot of people who knew or suspected Woody was behaving inappropriately, but it took a really long time before people were willing to say something because he did such good work and they wanted to be part of it. Now they realize, thankfully, that there are plenty of other directors they can work with who aren't so problematic. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 50 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It is by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.